Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. You can't talk about black history without acknowledging the role politics has had in impacting the lives of the African American community. From slavery to Black Lives Matter, Politics has been not only a tool of oppression, but a pathway to greater opportunity, inclusion, and creating change. Joining us today is Dr. Ravi K. Perry, Chair of the Department of Political Science at Howard University. A native of Toledo, Ohio, Perry holds a BA from the University of Michigan and a Master's and PhD from Brown University each in political science. He was assistant professor of political science at Mississippi State University and chair and associate professor of political science at Virginia Commonwealth University before joining Howard. An expert on black politics, minority representation, urban politics, American public policy, and LGBT candidates of color, Dr. Perry is the editor of a 21st century urban race politics representing minorities as universal interest. His second book, titled Black Mayors, White Majorities, The Balancing Act of Racial Politics, focuses on the challenges black mayors face in representing black interest in majority white medium-sized cities in the state of Ohio. His third book was published with his mother, The Little Rock Crisis, What Desegregation Politics Say About Us, frames the story of a Little Rock 1957 desegregation crisis through the lens of memory. Perry's recent publication, LGBT Politics and Rights Through the Obama Era, examines President Obama's evolution on the rights afforded LGBT Black Americans. He is a recipient of numerous awards and honors, including being recognized as an emerging scholar by diverse issues in higher education, one of Andrew Goodman's Foundation 50, Hero Citizens, Out Magazine's Hidden 105, and The Advocates, 193 Reasons to Have Pride, and 40 Under 40. Dr. Perry, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Um, I'm good. I mean, I am uh, adjusting to living in uh, Washington, D.C., and Northeast neighborhood, and Ward 7, which is east of the river, which is the kind of area known as uh, kind of a little bit more uh, let's just say less than affluent 
uh, and a little bit more colorful. Mm. And uh, I'm enjoying that experience and uh, working at Howard University, of course, now as chair of political science, where we are certainly uh, uh, keeping our nose to the fire as it relates to uh, you know increasing the number of black folks graduating uh, with expertise in politics. And the last several elections is, is not any indication that certainly this one upcoming should, should be one that yet again indicates the need for black folks to be engaged in their um, uh, political environments. And so I'm certainly honored to be working at a university that allows me to do that each and every day. Well, you know, you're you're from, you know, my neck of the woods, more or less, you know. Um, yes. Many people could say Toledo is sort of like a suburb of Detroit. You know, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump away. But, right. I mean, you spent a great deal of time at, in the South. How was that? Yeah. How was that, you know, compared to being a guy from the North? Well, I've learned a lot. So, um... I was first, I guess I'll give you the timeline. So I moved to the South in 2012. Oh, so my first time residing in the South. I was married at the time mm-hmm. to my husband, I, who I'm now divorced from. But we were married in 2012. And right, literally the day after our wedding, uh, we drove to Mississippi because I took a new job uh in mississippi and we were living in massachusetts since 2009 and uh in mississippi i lived in starkville mississippi which is in northeast central mississippi about an hour and a half or so uh west of tuscaloosa alabama where university alabama is Mm -hmm. and um I worked at Mississippi State University and being, you know, openly gay, married, black couple in a small town uh, that uh, uh, has, you know, 40 to 50,000 people, less than that when, of course, school is not in session and um, has one one airport and one plane that goes to Atlanta <laughs> uh, and, and Target is two and a half hours away. You know, you, you, you tend to find and build community in new ways. And one of the things I learned a lot of Mississippi, I was on the ACLU uh, board there. I did some work in the, the Delta. Um, I was active in marrying the first black lesbian couple uh, in Mississippi in Natchez. And so I, I had a great opportunity there to work on issues. I know, and I was excited about to, miss, to move to Mississippi because in Massachusetts, we had every right available to us in, in law and in social custom. And yet, uh, I felt as though there was something left to give and, and, and where else to uh, try to make yourself useful than in Mississippi, which of course is uh, a state that has been at the bottom of nearly every uh, metric and indices uh, related to health and well-being and education and economic success and mobility in this country since its inception. Uh, many of those numbers still sadly lag behind. And of course, it's the place of a bastion of racism and homophobia. And so I felt it would be, uh, or at least perceived racism and homophobia. And I felt that it would be uh, useful for me to apply my political 
talents or whatever they may be uh, in that rural setting. And certainly uh, working with a cadre of different constituencies that I had never worked with before um, in urban settings primarily, it was a unique opportunity to uh, really merge my own religious interests um, as a longtime member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church and a Christian, uh, along with my gay identity and my political uh, uh, interest in black politics. And uh, Mississippi kind of dovetailed all of those um, those opportunities for me. And uh, for three years, it was a great place to learn a lot about how different rural African Americans are in terms of their everyday activities in terms of their thought processes in terms mm-hmm. of their beliefs uh, as it relates to socio and political variables and religious comportment and et cetera. Uh, and, and, and that is something that, you know, I would not have gotten in a book, uh, mm-hmm. would not have gotten, um, had I not lived there, uh, for three years. And so that experience was unique. And then I left there after three years working, doing some LGBT activism, founded the, student union there for LGBTQ students, which is a, which is an activism-oriented or, organization, um, worked with the city of Starkville to expand its uh, um, health care to uh, city employees and anyone who lived in the house with those city employees, and including that person possibly who was the same sex spouse or partner. Um, and uh, that experience was uh, a unique one um, and a challenging one, uh, working with rural, black, uh, conservative, um, frankly, ignorant uh, pastors, mm-hmm. uh, and um, which is a different type of pastor than I've been used to in black, urban, middle-class communities. Uh, and so it was a unique experience for me in that regard, but we made progress as HRC uh, got them to come down and support. Uh, also was active in the aftermath of the murder of Marco McMillian, the first black gay man to run for political office openly uh, in the Delta uh, and perhaps in the entire state of Mississippi, if you depending on how you define open. And um, uh, he was murdered and I was of course involved. He was a friend of mine in the aftermath of that and getting the National Black Justice Coalition, of course, the nation's uh, civil rights organization for black LGBTQ people to come down to Mississippi to work with the um, Justice Department at the time, led by Eric Holder, Attorney General Eric Holder, to try to open up an FBI investigation uh, into the mysterious uh, circumstances of his death and to help work with the state in uh, expanding its hate crime legislation to include hate crimes against members of the LGBTQ community, which sadly was unsuccessful. Uh, I left there and went to Virginia and moved to Richmond, the old capital of the Confederacy. So <laughs> I was still in the South. I went from the rural deep South to the upper urban South. Uh, and uh, it was a, a great opportunity to live in Richmond. Lived there for four years. Worked closely with local and state government there and of black and LGBTQ rights uh, and was able to, in my position there as a associate professor of political science and then later chair of political science at Virginia Commonwealth University in downtown Richmond, 
was able to help uh, that institution expand its diversity imprint as it relates to diversity and inclusion and their diversity uh, strategic plan, uh, the diversity and inclusion efforts in the College of Humanities and Sciences, which is the largest college uh, there at VCU, and did a lot of work uh, in the Richmond um, uh, community, particularly I'm most proud of the uh, event I established, uh, uh, the Black and Bold um, RVA, uh, Black LGBTQ Awards and Recognition Program, where every year for the past four years, we have done a what has now become a statewide uh, recognition ceremony of Black LGBTQ people who are openly LGBTQ uh, and Black and are engaged with community. And uh, that was an exciting opportunity that we began four years ago. It was it was the first ever collaboration between a Black History Museum and a predominantly white LGBTQ organization in the country. Uh, and it was followed up by sponsorship by Fortune 500 companies like Capital One, uh, and it being hosted uh, originally at Diversity Richmond, which is the LGBTQ community organization in Central Virginia. And then the second year was hosted at the Black History Museum, which was historic. First time they had ever done a LGBTQ themed exhibit. Uh, and this is the Black History Museum of, of Museum and Culture uh, in uh, for the Commonwealth of Virginia, which is based in Richmond. Um, and um, the third year, it was at uh, Virginia Union University. Of course, the first time a HBCU has ever hosted a statewide program honoring black LGBTQ folks. Uh, and next week, uh, this coming Friday, it will be hosted again at the University of Richmond, a private school. Uh, and uh, I think that will be a unique opportunity as well to demonstrate the breadth of the reach of black LGBTQ folks and their engagement with community. And so I'm really proud of that effort. That has continued uh, throughout uh, the city uh, of Richmond and the uh, metropolitan Richmond area and throughout the state where we've since expanded it to include allies. We've recognized uh, some key politicians that have done some significant work like um, Donna Eachin, Congressman of the 4th District in California, in uh, Virginia. Uh, and others. And so it, it, that's a really, I'm very proud of that work in Richmond. That was uh, uh, fun work, but hard and difficult. And I'm so glad it's continuing. Uh, left there uh, last July and moved to Howard University, mm -hmm. which is in Washington, D.C., which is technically still the South. Just to be mm -hmm. clear, uh, uh, the founders of the Constitution wanted to move our original uh, nation's capital from Philadelphia to D.C. in part because it was the South. Uh, and so I technically still live in the South, although D.C. certainly does not necessarily feel that way all the time. Uh, but, yeah, so since 2012, I, I guess I've been in the South now for eight years, which wow. sounds crazy to me because I am certainly a Midwesterner, mm -hmm. um, and it comes through every single day when I am in another part of the country and I realize folks just aren't as pragmatic as we are in the Midwest. <laughs> and, that, and that's okay. But, you know, it's just that, you know, there's a, there's a unique pragmatism in the Midwest that is just normalized and uh, there seems to be a little bit more um, um, hope for a brighter 
uh, future, regardless of what impediments may come um, in our western and eastern coastal arenas in this country. Um, and so, you know, I will say I lived in New England for a bit, and that certainly was not engaging as a Midwesterner. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind in the Midwest. We talk to each other. You go in the grocery store for some bananas, and three hours later, you still standing there after bananas mm-hmm, <laughs> talking mm-hmm. to somebody. Uh, that's a Midwestern uh, just attitude, and, you know, that doesn't exist much throughout the rest of the country. And so as much as I have lived in the South, I will always be a Midwesterner. Well, you know, I have, you know you're from Toledo, and, you know, you know how. Yeah. And, you know, I'm from here. And what was it that came from in your upbringing from that where I know many a person who might have gone to Massachusetts, I know who might go to Atlanta, but to go to Mississippi and, and that big cultural difference, what was it in your upbringing that made you recognize that this was, you know, where you were supposed to be and that to to persevere. I know some people would have gone down there and gone like, you know, this is just too difficult. Let me go and find some place where I'm more comfortable. But you not only went down there, you persevered, and you made change. And you know, often, as they say, the fruit doesn't fall too far from the tree. What did you get in your upbringing in Toledo that gave you that stick-to-itiveness, as my auntie would say? Uh, well, you know, my parents, uh, are, uh, the best people in the world and, uh, remain the best parents. And certainly when me and my siblings were younger, were 1000% actively engaged in the development of their children. Uh, and both my parents are educators. My mother being uh, originally from Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, and uh, throughout all my childhood, certainly had a master's degree and got a PhD later in life in 1998. Uh, and my father um, um, had a PhD in 1978 from Wayne State. Uh, he was the first black person to get a PhD in sociology from Wayne State University mm-hmm. um, there in Detroit. And so uh, my upbringing was my parents were educators. My dad worked at Bowling Green State University for most of my upbringing as the founder and chair of the Department of Ethnic Studies. To this day, the only Department of Ethnic Studies in a major college university east of the Mississippi. And uh, the uh, um, Department that this year is celebrating 50 years uh, as it was originally founded in uh, 1970. And so very uh, excited about that this year. My dad then retired from Bowling Green in 97, 98 and went to Eastern Michigan University in Mm -hmm. Ypsilanti where he was uh, chair of um, uh, African-American studies, head of African-American studies rather was the title there. He was head of African-American studies um, uh, at Eastern Michigan, and then he retired from there a few years ago. And so uh, I would just say that um, uh, uh, that upbringing as an educator from my dad's perspective 
was central uh, to my ability to learn how to maneuver in, in different environments and to not just survive, but to thrive. Meanwhile, my mother was uh, active in the community in Toledo, was a full-time teacher, high school teacher at Rogers High School, an urban high school in central Toledo. She taught English, uh, and she also taught part in Africana Studies mm-hmm. as a visiting uh, assistant professor. Um, and so my point is that my ability to then leave that home and go to a lot of other places and do well relatively is because I think the educational fortitude that was afforded me from my parents, which really undergirded me with not only a lot of information and history relative to different folks in different regions and how to maybe work within those spaces and with those different kinds of people, uh, but also, you know, gave me the tools that things needed that when we were to step away from home where we would be successful, not because of uh, necessarily our uh, educational obtainment solely, but also because of our experiences and the uh, consistency with which our parents engaged with us as children on a day-to-day basis uh, and to be frank, you know, of the <clears throat> unconditional love that we received as children uh, certainly gives you the strength to feel as though you can do and be whatever. Mm. And uh, that matters, and, and, and that's something that we don't talk about enough, I think, in black communities. I was fortunate to not only grow up in a home of educators and a home of people with graduate education, but also to grow up uh, with parents who loved me unconditionally. And that is an experience that um, uh, certainly, I think, gave me the strength so that when I found myself in what I thought were weird spaces or with different people, uh, I knew that I could handle it. Well, you know, especially, like you said, when you went down to, to Mississippi, here you were recently married, and, you know, we know that there are things, even in the North, and even in the, even in, in things, places that people think are quote-unquote safe spaces, communities that are safe spaces, and openly LGBTQ couple, you know, there are things where you have a moment of wondering, but you feel safer, but when you got down there, I mean, it was like, okay, here he is down here, you know, teaching, and you were, you were in your black skin, and here you were openly gay. Did it make, what did it make you think of differently as far as interacting, particularly with people who were perhaps more closeted because of their environment as you came down there, that you didn't come out down there, you know, expecting it to be like you? What did it make you, did you have to take a step back? Did it change your way of thinking as how you interacted with people who you met in the LGBTQ community? who came from really a totally different culture. So, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, from 2012, in 2012 in particular, just to remind people, because the advancement of LGBTQ rights and attitudes has changed so quickly. It's the fastest uh, shift in social attitudes of any identity group ever in recorded American history. Uh, and so 2012, seemingly not so long ago, but in 2012, you just had uh, the president of the United States for the first time indicate that he was supportive of 
same-sex marriage. That had never happened before. We still had polling data that suggested a plurality, if not a majority, of people of color and African Americans in particular had some form of uh, questionable, concerning, uh, problematic views on homosexuality. Um, and you had a ha- only a handful of, of actual positive representations of black, uh, same-gender loving relationships. Um, and which is part of the uh, uh, kind of fanfare, so to speak, that followed uh, me and my uh, uh, ex-husband's transition from Massachusetts to Mississippi. Uh, And when I got to Mississippi, of course, uh, one of the things that I found quickly was obviously how religiously dramatic community is in that people are still very active churchgoers, particularly in the black community. People, um, uh, whereas, you know, it's declining pretty much everywhere else. And and people still uh, have, in many ways, uh, agriculturally based careers, uh, which, of course, is not the case throughout much of uh, the American uh, urban population. Uh, and on top of that, you had a whole bunch of black folks that were closeted who had never, for example, heard of, let alone seen or stepped into a church, you know, that welcomed them um, because of simply being who they were. And uh, so it was unique because students and uh, community members often I would find them in my office unsolicited, simply to chat, to talk about um, their own experience or to theorize how to solve a problem that they're having in their work or personal life relative to their sexuality or to, you know, lay the groundwork for some community action on these questions. And uh, I think the level of authenticity I was willing to share from day one as a openly gay a uh, man living in Mississippi who was married at the time, uh, that certainly, I think, opened up doors for a lot of folks who otherwise would have uh, perhaps not found um, a reason to even stay in Mississippi, let alone, you know, step into a church or uh, work with the university to try to get them to do more as it relates to programming or uh, hires or curriculum. Um, and and so it was a complete culture shock in that as an urban kid from you know the Midwest to be moving from New England, which is, of course is very white, uh, only 7% black in the state of Massachusetts, uh, to this new southern environment, it was a wake-up call, but it was, I think, an important one that uh, introduced me to the genuine diversity of the black experience. Mm-hmm. And had I not gone there, I would have, I would still be speaking and preaching the general Mississippi stereotypes that people who have never gone to Mississippi speak all the time. Uh, you know, and to this day, I was in Mississippi, ironically, earlier this week. And uh, back at Mississippi State on their campus for a Black History Month engagement. And, uh, you know, the, the institution uh, of, of racism and subjugation is certainly still a part of the culture. 
but it nonetheless uh, can easily be kind of massaged or mitigated away with this um, as a result of being exposed to people who are different uh, of actually of engaging uh, and that is something that I liked about the South that I did not get in New England that reminded me a bit of the Midwest and that is that people were always willing to talk to you in the mm-hmm. South even if they didn't agree with you uh, it was just a culture there and so as a result of me being like a, a, a big elephant in the room and people having never met a gay person in some cases or have at least an openly gay one or having never met a black openly gay one or having never met a black open gay one that's married or what have you right that that mm-hmm. will be uh that was a unique experience uh and, and people who have, who have said told me that had you know perhaps i not been authentic in me being who i am uh and not minding sharing that that they would not have um obviously approached me to discuss perhaps some of their own private issues that they for the first time felt so it was okay to begin to address uh, and so you know I I believe that the the responsibility of uh, as a black gay educator uh, who grew up in a home with thousand books and um, other types of uh, vast resources and education that it's my obligation to give back uh, to those who uh, have limited um, to no uh, access to resources to learn this kind of information. And so, uh, you know, they aren't getting it in formalized settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we, we have to find, we in the community have an obligation to figure out how do you get people this information that they otherwise would not have. Now, Robbie, we're going to take our first break here. When we come back, I'm going to talk about your, your field of expertise, political science. So we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown and I am speaking with Ravi Perry who is the chair of the Department of Political Science at Howard University. Ravi when you were in the South you noticed a lot of cultural things and I think that also being out being gay I mean a lot of these are cultural things that you you interactions that you have but you also you're a political science major you look at things through that political lens and i know that one of your books have talked about black mayors and white majorities and we're starting to see uh more black mayors and white majorities we're seeing more black people 
who are running for office and winning in places that you win. I think, look at Virginia, you know, and even LGBTQ people who are running and winning. How did, you know, first of all, what made you, you have two educators in your family, but you went into political science. What drew you into, into political science? And what have you observed through this lens? Oh, well, uh, so my parents certainly were not um, political scientists. Um, uh, my dad's PhD was in sociology. My mom's in American culture. But they were always active citizens, uh, who, people who went to, to meetings in the community and took their children with them, people who voted in every election and took their children with them. Um, and so that certainly introduced me to uh, political issues. People who, uh, you know, read the newspaper and read it with their children. And so the, you know, um, the kind of home environment I was raised in certainly introduced me to the importance of engagement in community. Uh, and I did live in a, a neighborhood in central Toledo uh, where it's, it's diverse and uh, historic homes. And uh, so all kinds of different people worked there. Um, and um, as a result, you know, as a kid, you had exposure to different kinds of folks. And for a period, uh, a, a few politicians lived in the neighborhood. And... You know, it was a neighborhood that would regularly be canvassed uh, by politicians. And and so I was introduced to campaigning and yard signs and those types of things simply by sometimes opening up my door and talking to whoever knocked on it. Um, and other instances, I was always, I think, nationally interested in politics. For example, I was really interested in this uh, concept of uh, why it is that we actually vote I mean, I mean, sorry, pick up uh, trash on Tuesdays. So that was our trash day. And I was fascinated with that for a while. I don't, I don't know why it was on Tuesday. Why did our block happen, happen when it happened? I remember when recycling became a thing in Toledo and how they distributed the recycling bins was always of interest to me. Uh, those, so those kinds of things... You know, why our snow got plowed on uh, some days and some days it did not. Like, I was just, as a kid, I wasn't able to notice and observe these things. And I found them to be interesting. And so it got me involved in local politics. I was campaigning at local campaigns. I was uh, running for student government offices uh, throughout uh, my high school career uh, and won all of them. Uh, and the um, opportunity... Uh, to continue in politics, of course, continued through my transition from high school to college, where I went to University of Michigan, go blue, Yay. and where I <laughs> and where I uh, majored in political science. And my advisor, uh, my fraternity brother, uh, Dr. Haynes Walton Jr., really the father of black politics, a graduate of Howard, the first PhD graduate of Howard's political science department in 1967. He was a professor at University of Michigan after spending 30-something years at Savannah State uh, in Georgia, where he's from. And uh, in the early to mid-90s, he transitioned to uh, 
Oh, sorry, I was just distracted. Uh, so, so early to mid-90s, uh, he transitioned to the University of Michigan. And um, he was uh, a, a professor that refused, after several years of classes and a mentorship with him, he refused to write me a letter of recommendation to law school. Mm. And so instead of going to law school, I ended up getting a PhD in political science. And uh, I think that wasn't a bad decision. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you find that that is something that, in, in hindsight, you say, you know what? He had the right instinct because you're doing what you, what you're passionate about, what you love. Yes, yes, yes. Now I do believe I could be doing this through a myriad of other venues, but nonetheless, as a political scientist, it has certainly been helpful um, for me to. Um, be able to use my expertise as an author and a scholar in real world kind of political situations. And I'm not so sure how useful I would be doing that if um you know, my resume. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I and I see that frankly today a lot with a lot of so called, you know, pundits and so called observers and experts who you know really you know if you look at their resume haven't even taken one class in american politics Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you know hey they're experts on it now and so that's the world we live in i certainly believe that my education has provided for me a unique perspective not a right or a wrong perspective not a better or worse perspective but a unique perspective uh toward solving real problems today um, and and I think that my education and, and my Midwestern pragmatism is a good uh, combination uh, because the reality of the institutional arrangements in this country that we all love um, is that it takes uh, an understanding of how this country works and how each of us must play a role in that in order for us to get what we want. You know, we don't, one of my fears is that we become a very passive culture um, and uh, including in our own interest. And, you know, we, and you can hear it in the way people talk, right, about how they talk about, well, the government this or they did that. You know, I correct people all the time. So the government's you and me. Mm-hmm. So you know, government is it, it comprised of the people we send to represent us in government. So if you don't like those people, guess what? You can vote them out. Uh, but it requires participation. And so, you know, this idea that, you know, the government and and politics is somehow this otherworldly, detached kind of thing or space you know, it's really, I think, a kind of thinking that we need to get ourselves away from. And it certainly for black folks has not been helpful at all. We have been hoodwinked, in some cases, by black intellectuals mm-hmm. themselves with t- with TV contracts, you know, to try to tell us that we should not be, you know, voting or participating in this way or only if we get this should we, you know, care or what have you. And, you know, again, what do those people all have in common? None of them have a political science degree which I'm not saying is something that is necessary, but I do believe that if you have the power of a position and a platform, you aren't just some uh, uh, everyday individual who is important, but who nonetheless, you know, do, 
doesn't, you know, come to these issues with a certain level of knowledge and therefore a certain level of expectation. Um, that, you know, I think for the rest of folks, us that have these privileges, it's really incumbent upon us to uh, use those opportunities uh, with ju- with um, a fair amount of um, uh, judiciousness so that we don't um, squander them in the name of our own self-interest. And I think, sadly, you know, there are some folks out there pimping the movement, as I like to say, mm-hmm. who are getting check after check for speech after speech and uh, for comment after comment on, as a contributor on this station or that. And I'm not discounting any of them. In most cases, all those comments are both necessary, pointed, and needed. But on occasion, they have been dangerous, uh, unhelpful, and have, I, my, in my opinion, contributed to a disillusionment and low, lower participation of blacks in the American electoral process. And that is not helpful in the long run in the end. Do you have see in your classrooms, uh, do you find that you do more education about the political process? And like you said, you know, it's our government. This is what you have to, you know, do and vote and be a participant. Do you find that you're doing more of that work outside of the classroom as you are in the classroom? And do you feel, how do we get that out into our community? As you have, like you said, you have more and more people who are getting elected, people who don't have the background and, you know, say, oh, I'm just going to get elected. And they're black. And sometimes they're doing our community a disservice. How do we get that out there? How do we educate people or, or push them in a direction to educate themselves? So to be honest, as a black community, we just have to do more work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's really there's really no there's no quicker solution to this. We can deal with and appropriately criticize and and work to eliminate all of the structural impediments and barriers that exist. And we must do that, whether it be uh, the unfairness of an electoral college system to some or whether it be voter suppression. You know, but the reality is, even after we even when we do all of that, if we were to do that and not also focus on us and our own uh, lack of complete efficacy on our own behalf in terms of political and social interests, then really, you know, what are we doing? And so case in point, you know, there 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 are a hundred thousand black folks who did not vote in Detroit in 2016. Mm-hmm. Now, you can blame Hillary Clinton and the fact that she didn't do this to do that. Uh, But let's be clear. People don't run out and vote for a candidate for office because they love love the candidate. If that's the case, that first black woman who could vote in 1965, do you think she loved her options? Or that first black man in 1870, do you think he loved his options? I just think that's just such uh, an unhelpful way of thinking. Um, and instead, I strongly encourage that, you know, we need to be doing all that we can in our local grassroots organizations. So about the 100,000 folks in, in Detroit, just as one example, who didn't come out in 2016, who did come out in 2012, and who we need to come out in 2020, you know, those, you know, you reach those people, I think, via the grassroots organizations in these neighborhoods and communities throughout the country that know where these people are and know how to talk to them 
and know how to engage their interests. And only local groups can do that. You know, and that and, and, and it has to be consistent. And it has to focus on education. Right? It can't just be event planning. It needs mm-hmm. to be community organizing. Uh, and those are two different things. It needs to be community organizing to actually educate people on how they can be the best participants on their on their own best interests uh, uh, as a citizen in this country. And to the extent that we do that, I think we will solve our own problems. Uh, we used to do that, you know, in the uh, 60s, they were called freedom schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, or Freedom Summer, and those were temporary projects as well, let's be clear, but the point is we did them. And uh, they were homegrown initiatives, and we just don't do that stuff anymore, to be honest. And uh, we do a lot of other things that are equally important, but I do lament, I think, the lack of common education of key social and political history and participation and engagement um, that's necessary to make this republic, this democracy work in our behalf, despite it being imperfect. Uh, and that can't just be educating people on, you know, key issues that you think might be important to black community. In other words, you can't just do a community forum right on criminal justice or on voting rights. Or those are great, but those are episodic, mm-hmm. you know. We need in the black community full education on politics. They aren't getting it in grade school and K through 12 education. Uh, they just simply are not getting it. And if they aren't getting it there, you know they're not getting it at home. You know they're not getting it in that church. Where the hell are they going to get it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, and, it, and how often do you see that? Like you said, our electorate. I mean, you find black people say like, well, they don't believe any of these people, no matter who it is. And even if they're black, because it's like the only time that they see them is when they're coming to get elected and then they disappear from the community altogether. You know, I will say that, you know, uh, the other night I had a chance to meet um, our lieutenant governor who is, I mean, and I was impressed because not only was he, he was honest about having left Michigan not seeing opportunities, and then coming back. And here he was at an event. He lives in Detroit, you know, and often you have a lot of black people who don't live in Detroit, but here he is, the lieutenant governor. He lived in the community, knew the people, and came to an event, you know, on time, (laughs) on time, spoke briefly, stayed for the entire event, didn't wait for people to bring him a plate, waited until others had ate, but spent the time talking to people about why he had left, why he came back, and what we needed to do in our community. And I'm going like, wow, you know, well, that's a pleasant change. You talked about, you know, you did a book on, and, you know, and like many people thought, well, outside of Southeast Michigan, Michigan is pretty white. And here, the, and he was on the ticket, and they said, "Well, why was he?" And he's not doing it just because to bring in the black vote. What did you? What do you see as you see black elected officials taking their role? And maybe, and but often people will say that our condition as a community, as African American community, hasn't improved. Uh, so there's a lot there. First of all, uh, full disclosure. Garland is my uh, classmate from University of Michigan. 
mm-hmm. and we are we are friends. So, you know, <laughs> I will I will put that out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I think his mo as it relates to his governance as lieutenant governor is one that is you know really my modeled after his own, of course, life experience and his upbringing, but also his generation. Mm-hmm. You know, in that, in that we are just a different generation. We actually talk to people. We actually want to try to solve people's problems and not just, you know, be, you know, good warm seats in the, you know, in the legislature or, or in the executive mansions or whatever. And so, you know, and that is just a different kind of politics that you see from this generation. So, and, and he certainly is a great representation of that, uh, if I can say so myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, um, the reality is in Detroit, you know, you got a white mayor right now. Yeah. You know, and I will say this: I said this in high school, in college, uh, in two thousand uh, uh, two or three or so. Uh, sorry, and I said when the, I said when, when Detroit gets a um, white mayor. This is when you will start to see this economic trend turn around. And uh, sadly, I was right. Uh, wish I wasn't right. Um, yes, I was. Mm-hmm. And um, the point there is that black folks have had 40 years of leadership in Detroit and really didn't have much to show for it, particularly as it related to the... Um, advancement of the black poor mm-hmm. uh and so that really did not change at all in detroit and in fact some are cases it was made worse uh and under black leadership and so you know people began to obviously say well hey well let's try maybe something different this time and uh lo and behold they did <laughs> and uh it, it seems as though it's been working out for them mm-hmm. uh but that that is also a signal to black politicians that you know, you're not just going to get elected and reelected because you black. You actually have to represent black interests. And guess what? There are some white folks that are doing it just as good, if not better. And so if you can at least do that, uh, then you're probably going to be out of a job. And so I think it's both politically expedient for them to do this. Uh, um, uh, but it's also a reflection of the fact that black voters in places like Detroit have been frustrated with the slow pace of change, or in some cases, no change uh, relative uh, to uh, their community interests. And so nonetheless, um, you know, that that is that is what kind of had led to the development of a lot of things, black uh, politicians running for office. And in the late 20th, early 21st centuries, uh, that um, th- that were not the kinds of black politicians in the civil rights generation of the generation before, and uh, and now again, I think you see that shift where uh, the generation of black elected officials and and would be candidates now are the kinds of folks that are that are really representing. Zennials and millennials, mm. uh, and a completely different point of view than even those who maybe are more familiar with, you know, the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, the black community changes and the representation of black interests changes. Therefore, 
would-be black candidates for public office perhaps need to change their approach as well. And the ones who have done so have been the ones who have won and been reelected in this new era of changing politics. Well, I guess, you know, at some point, that's another conversation because I think that many members of the African-American people community in Detroit will say, yes, things has happened, but not for us. You know, I mean, downtown and, and the other areas have not been inclusive of African-Americans. We haven't benefited as much from having this white mayor as bringing people back to Detroit. And gentrification is just running rampant. But I think that's a, that's another conversation. We're going to take our second break right here. And um, when we come back, we'll, I want to talk about the book you wrote with your mom and what's happening today. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm speaking with Ravi Perry. Ravi, you and your mother wrote a book, and it's about the Little Rock Crisis, what desegregation politics says about us. Yes, How did you two come to write that book, and what lessons do you think happened from, what do you still see happening as far as desegregation politics? Well, that book was, let's just say, was written uh, with me and my mom, and that book was on the Little Rock Nine crisis, Mm -hmm. and um, the uh, desegregation of Central High School in 1957. My mother was a native of Little Rock, and um, she heard dissertation at Bowling Green State University in 1998, was on the Little Rock Nine, and the relationship at the first test case of the Brown versus the Board of Education decision. And um, I wanted to, because she has such great rich data and firsthand accounts in that because of her own experience as a Little Rockian mm-hmm. in the era. And that's, uh, and because she knew all of the nine and my grandmother was the Sunday school teacher to many of them and so on and so forth. And so she had a kind of data that you just would not have in typical kinds of research projects on the Little Rock Nine that had been done up to the point where I began to work on that project. And so um, I wanted to borrow those themes, talk about kind of what does this mean for us politically and how is it that black folks who are, who live in these cities that are, implicated by a history where they had 
for an extended period of time in particular, the um, school systems in those local communities were desegregated. What, what did it do to those communities and those members of the community who lived through that? And what did it do for those members of the community uh, who like current high school students at Central High School today? What did it do for them? Uh, who clearly li- grew up around it, lived through it, but did not experience it themselves directly. And the conclusion is, we find out that if you grow up in one of those cities, like a Richmond, like a Little Rock, like a Nashville, or like a Charlottesville, like a Charlotte, like an Atlanta, like a Birmingham, you know, in these schools that had, these cities that had desegregated schools, that uh, you are more likely to participate in American politics and the local civic related activities because of your engagement and introduction to the importance of politics uh, in the uh, civil rights episodes of desegregation. Mm-hmm. And so because you were told and learned and introduced to, to politics through protests and insurgency, um, your introduction to politics um, also is more likely to have maintained itself, to have lasted over a long time. In other words, you're a little more likely to be actively participating in politics, as in voting, as in going to civic meetings, as in going to city council, as in you know petitioning by writing letters or whatever. You're more likely to do that and keep doing it in, as a black person if you're introduced to politics through those settings, as opposed to, let's say, black folks who... Um, uh, grew up in areas in which uh, they, that was not the case. In other words, that say folks like me mm-hmm. who did not grow up in areas that were that were historically desegregated um, and communities that have memorabilia and statues and schools named after all of that past, et cetera. You know, people in um, many urban areas out that history, let's say in the north, uh, in the upper Midwest, um, they are uh, less consistent with their with their uh, engagement in American political behavior, and so I found that story to be interesting because it helped to highlight that these civil rights act movement crystallizing events actually had an impact on the American politics of Black folks. We kind of knew that, but we never had an empirical study to prove it, and now we do. You know, it's interesting because I worked with a youth program and we had some kids who came up here from the South and they were, you know, they were like, oh, Detroit, you know, it's like this black city and everything. And they actually said after a while that, you know, here you all are and and that we were powerless, you know, and they talked, they talked about those very things, how they had been raised to participate in to vote, to do these things, and they were like very critical of the young people, their peer group here, who weren't, because they said, you know, weren't doing it. And I think that that's much like what you were saying. They grew up with that, hearing about it, being engaged, and wanting to to see young people engaged here and not finding it. You know? Right. Yep. I, th- I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and what what that says ultimately is that that we learn from our history mm-hmm. and that that but we also have to first know our history in order to learn from it mm-hmm. and and if we are un- unsuccessful at teaching it 
then we won't remember it. And if we don't remember it, then we're, of course, are bound to repeat it. And uh, that can be dangerous things. And I know people like to say that, oh, that's, you know, that's not going to happen, yada, yada, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, the reality is uh, if, if the current state of affairs, let's say in American politics, is in the indication, uh, it certainly seems as though we may be going down that same road again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have had a clear reintroduction to racism from this current president. And um, and the question now is, what are we going to do about it? Uh, you know, which is a perfect segue to now, as we're coming towards the end here, why, I mean, considering everything that happened in New York, why is Bloomberg a viable candidate to some African-Americans? Because some African-Americans are so desperate with this current situation, and rightfully so in this president, mm-hmm. that they see anyone who has perhaps this, the, the same amount of money, if not more, than Trump and can uh, go toe-to-toe with him uh, as a fellow New Yorker <laughs> is someone who maybe had the best shot of getting this guy Trump out of the office. And so that's one reason. The other, some other reasons you could argue is that perhaps some folks are indirectly influenced by the endorsement of all these black mayors, mm-hmm. although there's really little evidence to suggest that that citizens are are somehow encouraged to vote for someone because that one of their mayors or former mayors endorses them. Uh, but nonetheless, that is a phenomenon that's noteworthy. Um, but I just think it's, it's it's a clear example of one. A lot of folks do not know Michael Bloomberg. Mm. So, right, you know, a lot of folks, a lot, most black folks have not been to New York City. Okay, so let's, you know, put basic facts out there. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, you may not know, or you rather do not know the Michael Bloomberg that New Yorkers know. You simply don't, particularly black New Yorkers. And um, all I can say is that I think that it's a an experience that um, has been so catastrophic for black folks that for many, any person will do that isn't Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And some have argued that that is a dangerous position to take because, of course, Bloomberg has many conservative positions um, and some other candidates do as well. Uh, but there is something to the concept that uh, in this country, someone's going to win in November and that person's going to be either a Democrat or a Republican. Mm-hmm. And we know who the Republican nominee is going to be. So uh, the question is, what's the other alternative? And for some people, they don't really care the other alternative is. They just want to make sure that when we know who that person is and we crown them as the presumptive nominee, that they actually have a very good shot of winning. And clearly Bloomberg, who has been able to fund his way through Super Tuesday privately by his own donations, uh, has struck a chord with some people. You know, he and I know some older folks that, you know, again, who find the pragmatic incrementalism of, of some Democrat politics to be both progressive and uh, uh, actually achievable. And there are others who say it's too slow and too little and too late. And and so that's the beauty of black public opinion. We mm-hmm. are diverse people. Now, you know, after 
President Obama. I mean, we made a lot of strides forward in our, our President Obama. And I often think of this this period, you know, since 2016, like the Empire Strikes Back. It's like, you know, we're just not we're just not going to let no, we're going to take take it back to our time when we have power because I think that the majority recognizes that they are a minority and they're becoming more of a minority. But then initially, when I saw the field of Democratic candidates, I was pleasantly surprised to see the diversity. But as it has dwindled down to where basically you've got white people on stage, primarily white men on stage, that, you know, do you think when again will we really be ready as a country to embrace support and that a a candidate of color? a black candidate, a Latino candidate, something other than an older white man will really be seen, be able to hang in there because like people are saying now, well, it's all about the money. You know, nobody has a chance. They don't care. They don't have the money. But is there that American dream where we we were able to see that someone who looked like us could become president? Is that going to happen again anytime soon? Well, not if we keep throwing everybody under the bus the moment that they say or do something that we don't like. Mm-hmm. This this cancel culture really is dangerous. I mean, if anyone who has ever served in public office is going to have things done uh, or things upon their record that you are not going to like. Um, and, and some of them are going to be close to egregious. This is just what happens in American politics because if you are in the business of trying to actually solve real problems and not just be a warm seat, um, then you're going to get your hands dirty, uh, uh, and not in terms of, you know, dirty politics, but in terms of, you know, the ugliness of trying to solve these systemic problems that, that, that have been existing for years, decades in some cases. Um, and so, uh, you know, we throw away Hillary Clinton because she said super predators. We throw away Kamala Harris because she was a prosecutor. We, you know, we know we throw away Pete Buttigieg because he fired a black police chief. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we've got to do um, uh, a little bit more, have a little bit more nuance uh, in our political decision and thinking. And, and, and there is a way, I think, to do that without being an instrument of your own oppression. It's a fine line. But there is a, but it's an important line. I think it's a line that is doable. Um, I think it's a line that is doable for most people, and for, certainly easier to ascertain um, if you have uh, a, a level of engagement with American politics that helps you understand the limits of the institution of politics and the strengths. And uh, the limitations are that ultimately everyone that we send uh, represents us. And if you don't like something, it's because the person who you sent or did not send to represent them. And if you want to change that, then it's a simple solution in American politics. you got to get a mass group of people together to make the change happen. And you need to get them to do that change by voting. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are so many other aspects of political participation that matter and are equally important. Getting um, getting a grassroots support, uh, doing um, uh, the engagement that you know occurs on street corners, um, 
and you know going door to door and you know, there's a lot more uh, community related events in you know, specific grassroots group circles speaking to issues that matter to those communities directly all of that matters all that's important but if that isn't followed up with uh, voting and getting out the vote and showing people actually do vote then what really what good was it for mm-hmm. you know it's interesting because I guess you were saying that because I remember when Lori Lightfoot was running for, for the mayor, I mean, you saw people, you would think that, you know, the LGBTQ community, that black people, like you said, should have been like, yeah, you know. But like you said, many of them went through and they, they were looking at things that, well, I don't know if I can vote for her for that. But she overcame that. Um, do you look at, at campaigns like hers or even like um, what Stacey Abrams moved forward in Georgia? Are those... Are there lessons to be learned from those two campaigns and other campaigns like that? I'm trying to think of the guy who is in Florida, who's now on TV, hmm. Gillum, Andrew Gillum. Are there lessons to be learned from these campaigns? Well, certainly. One, the major lesson to be learned is from those campaigns um, is that you have to participate. Mm-hmm. Each of those campaigns is about getting people to participate in the American political process. The same system that's once called you three-fifths of a person, the same system that you had to petition for hundreds of years to get out of slavery, the same system that you had to petition for decades to get out of second-class citizenship, the same system uh, that you had to petition uh, to be made a citizen, uh, the same system that you had to petition and fight and march and bleed and die for to be given the right to vote. Yes, that same system that has proverbially and realistically screwed you over and your family and generations uh, is the same system that you got to utilize to actually make some progress in your life. Um, and again, that's what I mean. It requires nuance. Because if, if you believe in this cancel culture, then one day you're going to cancel, try to, try to cancel out the whole system. And, you know, some people, some countries have done that, you know, rewritten constitutions. But mm-hmm. our constitution has lasted since 1789 with only a handful of amendments, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. Well, Robbie, and, uh, go ahead. I'm going to let and, you have a last word. Yeah, and so I'm just saying, so in that, so we have to find a way to be willing to be serious about what it is um, that are, is our biggest challenges and how we can best utilize American politics to actually address and solve those challenges. You know, you know, I'm actually interested in improving the lived conditions of black folks. Mm. And that requires actually getting down the weeds and learning how this system works and trying to make some progress. And, you know, if that means that we get four years of incremental democratic, you know, less than ideal, less than perfectly progressive politics, that might be what we need so that the next time around we can get that progressive, you know, ideal that many of us may desire. Uh, But we're not going to, you know, get there uh, without also, one, bringing along a Congress with us uh, Mm -hmm. that looks similarly, because most of the stuff that these presidents 
that are running presidential candidates are campaigning on is stuff that Congress has to pass. Uh, you know, that $50 billion that Warren wants to give to HBCUs, she can't do that by herself. Uh, that, that free college that Bernie Sanders wants to give to uh, all young people, he can't do that by himself. The loans that he wants to forgive, he can't do that. These are not things that are universal unilateral presidential decisions. Now, yes, it is true that the president, uh, the office of the president and the presidency has grown in power and including its executive authority uh, to, uh, with executive orders, etc., to make some independent decisions. But there are just, you know, some large grand sweeping changes that are not uh, going to happen except through law. And even if they can make those changes, it won't matter if you don't do what we failed to do in the last election, and that is elect a predecessor, I mean elect, elect a successor after that president uh, who actually can submit that stuff into law. Mm. We had a chance to do that with Hillary Clinton, who would have made better and submitted some of the executive orders into law that Obama started. But instead, a lot of us were, you know, believing this false equivalency between Trump and Hillary Clinton. A lot of us were duped if you believe the Senate Intelligence Report from last fall, written by the GOP, that says mm-hmm. that black folks were the primary targets of Russia, uh, misinformation and disinformation campaign, people should be concerned about that. And I'm less concerned about the fact that we were targets. We're always going to be targets. We're black folks. We've been targets since 1619. That shouldn't be new to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I'm more concerned about why we're duped. Why, why are we duped by these messages and these these fake black people on these cartoons, these, uh, yeah, they are like cartoons to me, on these, like, uh, videos that are, you know, really speaking uh, very problematic rhetoric and messages uh, that are alleged to be speaking toward the black community. Uh, but really, after you, you know, listen to it for 30 seconds, you see that it's a, you know, a, a Trump ad or, you know, something like a more closer to what, um, um, uh, you know, Russia, frankly, may want us to be doing. And, you know, that's, I, because I'm interested in improving people's lives, and I'm not just interested in, uh, you know, uh, making good um, points on social media or speaking, you know, truth to power rhetorically. You know, all that's important, but I actually want to see people's lives change. I I don't want to be having the same conversation in a few decades with my own children mm-hmm. about, you know, what is it like to deal with police as a black man. I don't I don't want to be having the same conversation with my niece and nephew about health insurance in 10, 15, 20 years. I don't like these are not and and we don't get there simply by electing people who speak to our beliefs. If that's the case, I mean we would have been elect, black folks have been voting for beliefs from the beginning. It's not about beliefs. It's about our interest. Mm-hmm. We have to vote what's in our interest as a group. And sometimes it's in our interest as a group. It may not be in our interest individually. In other words, you may not like someone like a Hillary Clinton as a person, but you might be smart enough to realize that of the two options you got, that's the best option you got for people who look like you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... And that is just the kind of pragmatism that I understand is my bias. 
but I, but I do believe that that's the kind of pragmatism that that we need in uh, uh, in American politics and culture today. Otherwise, what we're going to see is an increasingly polarized electorate and an increasingly polarized black community, particularly along ideological lines uh, and along uh, um, uh, g- generational lines. And that won't be helpful to anybody. Well, Robbie, I know you have another appointment coming up, but I am hoping that later as we go through this year, I would love to have you come back. I think that, like you said, if you're in a classroom, you might get this, but these are conversations that we need to be having in churches, at the barber shop, at the beauty shop. As we play cards, we need to be having these conversations and and thinking this way as to how the condition and state of our communities in general and specifically our black communities really is better that we can pass on to our children, our grandchildren, so that one day they don't sit back and say like, you know, this is the same stuff going on. And that, and that is so important. But Robbie, I want to thank you for your time. I will get- oh, no, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And again, I am grateful for, you know, your, your continued work in these uh, efforts because we have to be a- a- ensuring that everyone gets this information. And, uh, you know, you play a key role in that because if we don't, we will have no one but ourselves to blame. Well, I plan on talking to you later this year. I want you to yes. travel safely. Okay, and hopefully, yes, I certainly intend to. Thank you. Hopefully, uh, if I don't see you down in DC, maybe if you come home to Toledo, let me know when you're coming up there because you know it's right around the corner. That's right, yes. <laughs> I will certainly be in Toledo some point in the next few months because I have to be. So oh. I will let you know. Okay, Robbie. Well, thank you again, and I'll talk to you real soon, okay? Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye bye. I want to thank my guest, the chair of Howard University's Department of Political Science, Dr. Ravi K. Perry. Dr. Perry is an expert on black politics, minority representation, urban politics, American public policy, and LGBTQ candidates of color. Be sure to follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of a show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.